1: hacktivism appears to have hit Iran. Misconfigured Power Apps portals expose data on millions. The FBI warns of the activities of a ransomware affiliate gang. Mr. White Hat really does seem to have given back all that stolen altcoin. Ben Yellen checks in on Apple's CSAM plans. Our guest is Charles DeBeck from IBM Security on the true cost of a data breach. And finally, Dog Bites Man. Criminals cheat other criminals. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, August 24th, 2021. A group calling itself Adulat Ali, Justice of Ali, has posted video it says it obtained by compromising CCTV systems, at Iran's Evin Prison, Zero Day reports. Adalat Ali, which may be an Iranian dissident hacktivist group, says it wished to draw the world's attention to abusive conditions in Evin. Attribution and identification of the group remain unclear. While it looks like a hacktivist operation, that's a preliminary assessment. The hacked video is the second major region operation against Iranian systems after the attack on the country's railroads. Security firm UpGuard has disclosed that it found Microsoft Power Apps portals configured to allow public access. The researchers notified 47 organizations that their data were vulnerable to exposure. Some of the information at risk included personal information used for COVID-19 contact tracing, COVID-19 vaccination appointments, social security numbers for job applicants, employee IDs, and millions of names and email addresses. The issue involves misconfiguration as opposed to exploitation of a vulnerability. Users are addressing the misconfiguration. Wired puts the total of records exposed at around 38 million. That's exposure as opposed to known compromise, but in any case, it's a lot of records. UpGuard notified the organizations whose exposed instances it found, but it also informed Microsoft, which is, we note in disclosure, a CyberWire sponsor. Redmond responded by changing the default table permission. Starting October 2021, Microsoft said, all new provisioned portals will have strict as the default value instead of none. Microsoft has also made a portal checking tool available so organizations will be able to determine whether their data have inadvertently been exposed. UpGuard thinks the principal lessons to be learned from this experience are these. First, Platform vendors might consider changing their product in response to observed user behavior, and platform operators should, quote, take ownership of misconfiguration issues sooner rather than leave third party researchers to identify and notify all instances of such misconfigurations, end quote. Second, software as a service providers should improve their users' visibility into access logs. Third, anyone handling sensitive information should be prepared to handle reports from researchers of a data leak, breach, or exposure. And finally, UpGuard would like to see better understanding of the problem of data exposure. If you've left data open to the world, accessible to anyone, the people who find such data haven't hacked you. The U.S. FBI yesterday warned of the activities of a ransomware gang styling itself the 1% group, The record reports that the 1% group is a criminal customer of ransomware-as-a-service operators. It is, or has been, a known affiliate of R-Evil, Egregor, and Maze. Coveware pointed out, for example, that victims who didn't pay the 1% group wound up mentioned in dispatches in R-Evil's Happy blog. The Bureau says that the extortion demands have proceeded in three escalatory stages. First, a leak warning— After initially gaining access to a victim network, 1% group actors leave a ransom note stating the data has been encrypted and exfiltrated. The note states the victim needs to contact the 1% group actors on tour or the victim data will be leaked. If the victim does not make prompt communication within a week of infection, the 1% group actors follow up with emails and phone calls to the victim stating the data will be leaked. The second stage they describe as the 1% leak – If the victim does not pay the ransom quickly, the 1% group actors threaten to release a portion of the stolen data to various clearnet websites. And then finally, the full leak. If the ransom is not paid in full after the 1% leak, 1% group actors threaten to sell the stolen data to the Sodinokibi Group 2 to publish at an auction. How do the attackers get access to their victims? Well, Phishing, of course. Mr. Whitehat, as Poly Network refers to the hacker who looted cryptocurrency held by the DeFi provider, has now returned all of the more than $600 million stolen in the theft. Vice reports that Poly Network is now in the process of returning the holdings to their proper owners. Poly Network reports that it's well on the way to complete recovery, and all things considered, the company seems surprisingly pleased with Mr. Whitehat. Mr. White Hat, whoever he is, has also, according to Vice, returned the $500,000 bounty he received from Poly Network. So, whether it was a demonstration from the start, a goof, or the crime it appeared to be, and whether the return of the funds was didactic, repentant, or motivated by the sensation of the hot breath of John Law on the back of the neck, the money's back and flowing into the wallets where it belongs. And good afternoon, Mr. White Hat, Wherever you are. And finally, security firm Digital Shadows this morning offered a look at fraud, contention, and mutual exploitation in the criminal underworld. The C2C market does function like a market, but a market with some very ugly corners. Digital Shadows says, quote, There are still some unscrupulous criminals out there, end quote, in what they would concede is an observation worthy of Captain Obvious. But what kinds of unscrupulous criminals are out there? What's their taxonomy? If you're interested in the C2C market, perhaps if you're asking for a friend, here are the two biggest families of faithless crooks. First, exit scams, criminal proprietors of underworld markets close shop and abscond with their criminal customers' ill-gotten money, and phishing. Yep. Yep. That carding forum you, Mr. and Mrs. Criminal, were interested in may, in fact, just be a spoof, and the invitation from Prince Mokole Mbembe's widow's carding shop may be designed to steal from you. That's just two, and we trust that human wit will evolve still others. Charles DeBeck is a senior cyber threat intelligence strategic analyst with IBM X-Force Incident Response and Intelligence Services. He and his colleagues at IBM recently published the latest version of their cost of a data breach report. I checked in with Charles DeBeck for some of the highlights.
0: First off, the general cost of a data breach has continued to increase year after year as we've done this report. So there's a bit of natural inflation to the data over time. Uh, But this was a pretty significant jump. And I think a big part of that was probably due to the large increase in remote work that impacted operations around the globe. The pandemic was a major factor, I think, in increasing the average cost of a data breach.
1: And and how so? What what does working from home uh, contribute to the, the number going up? Well, so the numbers show that the average,
0: on average, a data breach that occurred in an organization that had significant remote work operations that had to be stood up increased the average cost by about one million dollars. So right off the bat, we know quantitatively there's a significant impact. Qualitatively, though, when we're looking at you know what would cause this increase, I think a large part of it is the fact that organizations very quickly had to stand up new network infrastructure, new endpoint infrastructure, and new capabilities to enable remote work in a very, very tight time frame. This sort of uh, this sort of expansion of capabilities is usually done over the course of months or years with long-term strategic planning. By comparison, last year, we saw a lot of organizations suddenly get told, you have to set up a brand new set of networks and capabilities, and you have until Monday which is a very (laughs) tight timeline.
1: Was there anything in this year's report that was unusual or, or stood out as being surprising?
0: I think one thing that really surprised me was some of the consistency that we saw in defensive measures for things that help mitigate costs for data breaches. Last year, we saw that automation and artificial intelligence had a major impact on reducing the average cost of a data breach, leading to a difference in average cost of about $3 million, which was pretty huge. Uh, again, this year, we, tended to, we saw the exact same sort of thing, automation and AI coming in and having a huge impact on organizations in reducing their average cost of a data breach. And that, to me, is interesting because it means that uh, not only is this a one-off thing, this isn't just a fluke or a, a random data point, but it starts to emerge as a trend to me for organizations that this is something that's consistently providing value and something that organizations can do to have a reasonable probability of helping protect themselves.
1: Where do you suppose we're headed here? I mean, is there? You all have been at this for quite a long time. Uh, you know, this—you've you've been putting out this report uh, year after year for for nearly two decades now. And um, do you suppose we have any hope of flattening
0: the curve? Is there? Are there good days ahead? I think there is hope on the horizon, and I really think it comes down to how can organizations reduce the time it takes to identify and contain data breaches. And it is a cat and mouse game, right? Threat actors are constantly trying to make it tougher for us to do this, and net defenders are constantly trying to do this faster and faster. But I think that we're finding new tools in our arsenal here. And again, going back to that sort of artificial intelligence and automation component, I think that's one of the key ways we can help reduce that timeline for identifying and containing breaches. Because automation allows you to work at computer speed, you know, it allows you to do things in a matter of moments, whereas an actual person would take a matter of minutes. But minutes in computer time is an eternity. And so I think using analytics and using automation does, to me at least, provide a good sense of hope that organizations can do a lot to help reduce the cost of a data breach. But it is a very conscious investment. It's something that may not return on the investment immediately, but in the long term will provide significant benefits for an organization.
1: So based on the information you've gathered here, are, are there any specific recommendations you can make for organizations to better defend themselves?
0: I think one specific recommendation I want to make for an organization is if you're engaging in cloud migration, uh, make sure that you're doing it in a smart and safe manner. Uh, one thing we found in this report that I thought was very interesting was that cloud migration was actually a major cost amplifier. So if an organization was breached while migrating to the cloud, that actually significantly increased the average cost of a data breach for them. Uh, So to me, the takeaway here is that organizations should still be moving to the cloud. There's a lot of security benefits, so we could talk for a really long time about all the great reasons why organizations should move into cloud environments. But I think what it means to me is we should continue that movement, but we need to make sure we're doing it safely and securely. We don't want to just sort of haphazardly move our stuff into a cloud and say, okay, great, there it is. Hopefully everything's all right. You know, we want to make sure that we're doing this in a way that makes sense so that we don't have a breach that happens during this migration process, which could be very costly for an organization.
1: That's Charles DeBeck from IBM X-Force. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program That's vanta.com/slash cyber. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host on the podcast. Caveat, which if you have not checked out yet, what are you waiting for? (laughs) It's worth a listen. Uh, Ben, welcome back. Thanks, Dave. Uh, We would be remiss if we did not discuss uh, the recent uh, hubbub from uh, Apple's announcement that they're going to be scanning iOS devices for uh, CSAM, which is uh, Child Sexual Abuse Materials, um, can we just do a quick overview here from your point of view? What's going on here?
2: So Apple is doing two things. They are both scanning iMessages. If a parent opts in, uh, they're scanning the messaging application on iOS devices For nude images uh, Mm -hmm. for minors. So if a minor is between 13 and 18 years old, um, the minor would be notified, would get an alert, would tell them uh, you're about to send or receive a nude image. This is a warning. Uh, That message would go to the parents if it's a child under 13. I think there are fewer civil liberties objections to that particular announcement from Apple. Hmm. The announcement that presents more significant civil liberties concerns, in my view, is the announcement that Apple is going to scan photos in the iCloud against a known database of child pornographic images. Uh, and if they discover that a uh, an image is uh, matches one that's in that database, they could potentially share that information with the government, and that would lead to a criminal prosecution.
1: Right now, the 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 sticky wicket here is that there are plenty of tech companies who are scanning their cloud services for these sorts of images. That is routine at this point. Facebook, Google, Dropbox, they all do that. What sets Apple apart is their plan is to do the scanning on device.
2: Right. So it's not just in the cloud, it's on the device itself. And There's no technological reason they couldn't scan a hard drive, for example. Mm. They're making a policy choice to confine this right now to photos that are posted on an iCloud. But the technology exists to search it on somebody's device, even if they don't post that photo to the iCloud. So this presents many potential civil liberties concerns. It's not per se a Fourth Amendment violation because this is a private company. Mm -hmm. But the government, of course, knowing that Apple has instituted this practice, this policy, is going to know that they probably have access to information that would be valuable for criminal prosecutions. And we know the government has tried hard to get Apple to reveal encrypted communications, uh, to give the government access to encrypted uh, communications. And it's not just our government. Even though this program uh, is being piloted in the United States, it certainly eventually will be available to overseas governments that are far less concerned with uh, civil rights and civil liberties. Hmm. And even though it's being used right now for uh, CSAM, Uh, It could be used for other purposes, to scan images, to scan messages for uh, disfavored political content or for censorship purposes. Mm -hmm. So the idea is once you build this technology and once you uh, put it into practice, as Apple plans to do over the next several months, then you have created this backdoor. And even though you are trying – you are claiming to confine the use of this technology in the short term – Once the technology is created, Apple is going to be under enormous pressure from governments around the world to use it for uh, more expanded purposes. Hmm. And so that's the inherent danger here.
1: We should mention that uh, users do have the ability to opt out. If you don't use Apple's iCloud Photos service, your photos on your device, according to Apple, won't even be scanned. They won't be looked at unless you're using their cloud uh, services, Uh, but that doesn't seem to be putting people at ease.
2: Yeah. So first of all, as I said before, that's a policy choice. That's not a technological choice. Apple, of course, still could scan your device. Mm -hmm. Um, They do it for a bunch of other purposes. You know, find malware on your uh, MacBook, for example. Right. Uh, So that's not necessarily anything new. That's a policy choice that they're making now. And I think the concern is that this is going to be a slippery slope where – a government says, if you really care about stopping child exploitation, why can find these searches just to photos that have been posted in the iCloud? Why can't you also search, you know, photos that have been saved in a hard drive or even, you know, have been, uh, you know, just saved on, on a single device? So I think that's the concern, That's more of a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. I also think the fact that this is Apple carries, uh, you know, an increased weight as opposed to Another service provider. Mm. Apple presents itself as, uh, you know, being very committed to user privacy, the protection of users' information. Uh, that's how it sells themselves. Uh, themselves That's how they present themselves publicly. Right. And so, I think this cuts against uh, one of their professed corporate values, which is the protection of private information. They're put in a tough place um, because, obviously, to be against this, it's seemingly to be against rooting out sexual exploitation of minors. Right. The intentions here are very noble, and I think we have to acknowledge that. I think we have to acknowledge um, that the problem that they're trying to solve is, of course, of the utmost importance. Right. Um, But, you know, I think the method in which they're uh, engaging in this type of surveillance of their own users— could come back to to haunt those users, and so I think we have to be honest about that as well.
1: Yeah, it also strikes me that this is, um, in some ways, you know, Apple has a, a corporate culture, I believe, of kind of knowing what's best for our users. Yes, right. It's and it's that old, you know, like Henry Ford said, you know, if if I'd asked my users what they wanted, they would have said they needed, you know, better, faster horses or better right. buggy whips or you know something along those lines, but. And so Apple, along in their history, has said, you know, you don't need that floppy drive anymore. You don't need that headphone jack anymore. Um, and I, I think that aligns with Apple's surprise at the backlash here. I think Apple thought that they they did the hard work of designing what is, I think most people agree, a very clever technological solution to this. And yet, people are still having... A very strong reaction. Yeah, I think a couple of things go into
2: that. Uh, One is we have values in this country about protecting private information. Some of that is inherent in uh, our legal system. The Fourth Amendment protects us against unreasonable searches and seizures. Mm. So even though this, you know, as of now isn't an action the government is taking, it does seem contrary to our values, where we don't want anybody in our protected private spaces. Uh, And that certainly includes technological spaces, including, you know, the iCloud where we store our our photos. So I think that's a huge part of it. The other part of it, like I said, is the fact that this is supposed to be the company that most stringently protects user privacy. Mm. And so if Apple is doing it, then what does that mean for every other company that doesn't present themselves uh, as protecting our private information? And what does it mean for technological companies that are based overseas in more authoritarian countries Are they going to learn from Apple and deploy this technology in a way that doesn't just target sensitive, exploitative images, that sort of thing? Yeah. That it's used to go into messaging applications, to go into photos, and try and crack down on free speech or political dissent. And I think those are – that's kind of the nature of the backlash as I see it.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, there's much more to this conversation. And in fact, we spend the entire episode of uh, Caveat uh, this week discussing this. We're joined by uh, David Derajotis. He's from uh, Burns and Wilcox. Uh, and uh, we take a little uh, a little unusual route where we take on one topic for this week's Caveat. So uh, if this is something that interests you, uh, please check it out. That's the Caveat podcast. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. the cyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Peru Prakash, Justin Saby.